Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome. My name is Jarrell. Um, I've been here for about four and a half years in your church family, in your community, uh, serving as the student pastor, middle school, high school, college, young adult kids. And it's been just an absolute blessing and an absolute joy. And if you don't know, our middle schoolers and our high schoolers are fantastic and intelligent, and it's a great, a great group of kids to be able to pastor. So if you have your Bibles, would you please turn to the book of Ruth um, and, or your apps, I suppose. Um, we're going to start in chapter 3. Um, and we're just going to jump uh, right in. I'm going to try to catch you up to speed. If you don't know, we are preaching through the book of Ruth. We're in chapter 3 today. It's, the, it's part 4 of a five-part series. Um, during Pete's absence, uh, Nathan Riley, our worship pastor, has been spearheading a team of uh, me, Linda, and Evan Hendricks, uh, as well as Amy Kasari, to prayerfully discern what God might have for us and our community in the book of Ruth um, and preach through as a team. And so a lot of our ideas are shared uh, they're on the back end of uh, discussion and deliberation about what it looks like to um, hear the book of Ruth and apply it to our lives this morning. So um, by way of catch up, um, I, I really want to show this family tree um, because we talk about Ruth and Naomi and Elimelech and all these weird people's names. And I'm a visual person, so I just like to look at this family tree. So um, a little bit of the backstory is that Elimelech and Naomi are Israelites living in Bethlehem during the time of Judges. As you know, uh, the time of Judges was a really tumultuous time in, Israel, in Israelite history. Um, there's this cycle of disobedience um, from the nation, the judgment of God, um, repentance and restoration back to uh, living as a community of blessing uh, for their neighbors. They got a little lax, and then that cycle would repeat itself. And so typically what happened was there was a famine um, by way of God's judgment. And so this particular family, Elimelech and Naomi, uh, flee Bethlehem, uh, which means um, bread, and flee a place of food and head over here to Moab, um, which is kind of enemy territory. Um, there's a long history of Moab and Israel in conflict. And so this can be interpreted as a move by Elimelech that maybe didn't show faith in God. Um, and, and perhaps, most likely, Naomi was passive in this, and she had to go with her family, which included her two sons. Um, when they get to Moab, Elimelech dies, and then 10 years pass. Um, Ruth's son, or Naomi's sons, marry Moabite women, and then they die. And so this puts Naomi in a really peculiar position. She's experienced a significant amount of loss uh, where their new family tree uh, looks something like this, where there's just uh, two remaining. Uh, Orpah decides to stay in Moab. And Naomi, from kind of this bitter, um, very uh, lamentful and broken place, decides to return to Israel um, on her own. And she insists that Ruth does not go with her. But as we know, Ruth does go with her. So they return back to Israel, um, just the two of them. And we encounter a really unique state um, from Naomi um, in this condition. She's encountered great loss. Her name, Naomi, means pleasant. Um, but she is in a condition of bitterness. I think deep, deep, paralyzing anxiety and depression, a loss of identity, loss of geographical home, 
um, a loss of her family, and it's easy to just skim over and like, he died, then they died, and then they left, and then she went back. Um, but over the course of 10 to 15 years, think of the trauma um, and just the kind of loss of identity that Naomi would encounter, which leads her to say something like this, which is in Ruth 1.20. Don't call me Naomi when she returns, which means pleasant. Rather, call me Mara, which means bitter. So she's, she's changing her entire identity, not just a name, who she is as a person. Because the Almighty um, has, made my, has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. It's really interesting that she does not shy away from blaming God for her problems. Um, very directly, even using the word almighty, almost in juxtaposition of like, God, who has all this power, you have not shown that power to me. Call me bitter. Interestingly enough, though, Ruth follows Naomi back to uh, Israel, calling her God, Naomi's God, Ruth's God. Um, and what's really interesting is that that expression of Naomi's pursuit of Yahweh through lament is actually what grounds the faith of Ruth. Um, when Naomi's life is most bitter and she's blaming God, somehow the way Naomi lamented and the way Naomi encountered suffering was, uh, was a beacon of hope for Ruth, so much that she would be, become loyal and committed and covenant with Naomi at a personal level and even at a faith level so that Naomi would not be alone. The famous statement is Ruth 1.16, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay which we'll come back to in a little bit about perhaps a deeper meaning to that. So their current condition is um, Ruth, or Naomi. Gosh, there's so many different names. <laughs> Naomi, I, I view her as sitting in a dark corner in their home, unable to move and unable to function at a normal level of human functioning, so much so that Ruth alone takes initiative to provide food um, through this process called gleaning. Um, and so God has initiated um, a, some social structures within the nation of Israel so they could bless um, the marginalized and those who live on the fringe, um, where rich landowners would leave certain amount of crops as well as the remnants of the harvest so that others could come and take those um, for their daily sustenance. And so Ruth and Naomi are just in this day by day, week by week, hard, gritty work. As Linda said, um, Ruth is wearing a vintage romper with her hair up and it's all dirty and she's carrying like sheaves back to Ruth um, who is in this state of deep spiritual, emotional and identity depression. So Naomi hears about this man Boaz who Ruth has been working for and the light bulbs start to go off and here's where we see uh, the smallest glimmer of hope enter into the soul um, of Naomi. And that's where we're going to jump into the story today in chapter 3, uh, verse 1, when Naomi introduces this idea to Ruth of a family redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. So let's look at chapter, th chapter 3, verse 1. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you. And that, ho that word home literally means rest or place of security. Um, not just a house, a home, um, where you will be well provided for. We see again the selfless posture of Naomi. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. 
So she's already mentioned this idea of a kinsman redeemer in chapter 2, verse 20. She says, this man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Depending on our translation, it might say kinsman redeemer or family redeemer. Let me just stop and take a moment to explain what this is. Um, whenever I teach Ruth to middle schoolers and high schoolers, this is the thing that they can never understand. Um, and honestly, as adults, don't tell anyone, but it was like, what is this? What is this family redeemer uh, situation? So um, a family redeemer is, is basically this, someone who has the obligation to redeem a relative in serious difficulty. Primarily, we see this out of uh, Leviticus chapter 25, where if someone has lost, someone in your extended family has lost land and you have the ability to buy it back, you are under obligation to buy it back to keep the land in your family. Um, if someone has been sold as a slave and you have the ability to buy them back, which is what the word redeem means, you would literally buy them back so they can stay in your family. Um, if someone is needy or helpless and needs food or security or some way uh, to find social structures to be provided for, and you have that capacity, you are under the obligation to buy them back into your family. I mean, it's a really awesome, unique way that God's law is not just this weird hierarchy of that would be cool if, or God's just floating up there making weird rules that we have to follow, but he's concerned about the flourishing uh, and the prosperity of his community um, so that Israel might be a blessed people and be able to bless um, those around them. Um, Deuteronomy also notes this idea of marriage, whereas if your brother dies, you would marry his spouse to keep that family name um, going, which is not something we practice here. You know, maybe we should start. Nope. Um, and so here's the idea that, that God is saying this, know your family, value your family. If you are wealthy or secure or privileged, God has asked you to extend hospitality to your own family, regardless of the inconvenience um, or sacrifice. And this is, so we see two unique expressions that this community is living according to the flourishing law of God, where there are landowners who are allowing the poor to glean, and there are um, people in a place of privilege who are leveraging that uh, for the marginalized to keep family systems alive and social structures alive, that Israel itself is a community of blessing and that therefore extends outside um, to the neighbors around them, including Ruth, who is a foreigner, um, a Moabite, who encounters this blessing. And so what I really want to dive into first is the condition of Naomi's heart, that this is a huge step for her. I think Naomi is on the back burner of 15 years of deep spiritual depression, and this is the first introduction of light and hope that God has sovereignly provided um, for this family. And so Naomi has made this point um, very clear, and the first thing Naomi does is resists the temptation to hide her true feelings from God. She resists the temptation to buffer to feel something and think something to God or about God and not tell him as sharply and poignantly as she feels it. So she has made a clear point to blame God. She is bitter at God. She is bitter at her deceased husband. She is bitter at the situation, bitter at herself. Naomi, in the too fast to process tumble of life, from the darkest of corners, from the deepest place of emptiness and exhaustion, has audaciously peeled back a layer of her heart, and she finds the courage to once more challenge the steadfast love of Yahweh. Um, an interesting quote from um, 
Carolyn Curtis James says this, um, and many people compare Naomi as kind of to Job as kind of the female counterpart to the suffering of Job. An honest reading of the Bible reveals a God who does not shy away from awkward questions. In fact, he almost seems to welcome them. Ruth met God in her pain and gained a deeper kind of trust in him that weathers adversity and refuses to let go of God. Her story coaxes us to get down to the business of wrestling with God instead of chasing rainbows and to employ the same kind of brutal honesty that she did, if we dare. And what's interesting is that that posture that Ruth, um, that Naomi, this is going to happen the rest of the sermon, just mixing them up. Person A, person B. Um, Naomi encounters this suffering, which invites Ruth into it, which is another observation about Naomi, is that she resists the temptation to hide her true emptiness from her community. From this place of darkness, she is honest with God, and she is vulnerable with her community, and when they offer to help, she lets them. Um, We often walk the thin line between our best selves and our worst selves. What should we do with our dueling emotions and identities? I don't know if you're like me, sometimes you feel like you're walking this very narrow line between barely holding it together and then entirely falling apart. And I think um, if you've been in the Christian community enough, maybe you've been in environments or situations where you've been able to just let go and whatever sense of like control or fear that's causing us to white knuckle and like keep trying to fight for our own um, emotional security in isolation from the community, when you finally can encounter a safe place to say how you really feel um, to trusted followers of God, um, I think that is where you find the life, and that's what um, Naomi did. I think this is countercultural. I think this is one great way that the church can be an expression and a light of God's kingdom in our society that aside from maybe some um, too much information, Instagram, social media posts, for the most part, um, in person, we keep to ourselves. When we don't allow people to know our brokenness and help, we muffle the voice of God's witness on earth. This is, this is an opportunity for us, Antioch, um, to be honest with one another and honest with God, um, that those in Bend and in Central Oregon might say, man, I'm, I don't know about their God, but I know about their community, and that sounds like a good place um, to be. When life is bitter, find blessing in the community of God and wait for him to do something beyond your control. When you find yourself on that frail line between falling apart and holding it together, feel free to fall apart into the community of God and be honest with God about it. Are there conversations that you need to have? Antioch, is there a culture that we need to reorient here? Um, Whereas we hustle into the lobby at 10.05 with our kids, and someone asks you how you're doing, and there's that moment, I don't know, do I want to tell you how I'm really doing, or I just want to say good? Um, I encounter this with our high school students a lot, where I know maybe some of the backstory of what's going on in their family, and they walk up the stairs of Six and Clay, and you know, we're a hugging kind of youth group, so I'll give them a hug. Like, how you doing, dude? Great. Like, <laughs> I know you're not. Like, I know you're not doing great. And I don't know what prevents us um, from telling someone that, but I feel like as a community, um, that's something that would, that would give hope. So Naomi has hope. 
and she's going to initiate this really awkward plan with Ruth. And I know a lot of you only came to chapter three, so you could hear what we say about the threshing floor. That's okay. We're going to get to it, um, and we're not going to sanitize it, um, and I'm not going to tell you the answer either. So read some commentaries. Um, and so she says, let's make a plan and make, make it happen. And so basically she says, all right, Ruth, here's what we're going to do. Boaz is going to be on the threshing floor tonight, winnowing barley. It's the barley harvest. And so if, you don't, if you're not familiar with um, ancient Near Eastern threshing floor etiquette, which maybe a few of you aren't, um, here's how it works. You just take off your shirt, flex your muscles, grab a pitchfork. That was a joke. Grab a pitchfork, <laughs> grab all the barley, chuck it up in the air at the right time of night where the wind is strong enough but not too strong. Uh, the grain is heaviest. It falls down right back onto the floor, which is a big smooth surface or a big rock. Um, the straw is a little heavier. It floats down and lands over here. Um, and then the chaff, which I always want to say that wrong, uh, floats a little further and lands over here. And so basically you take, you're manually uh, removing the grain from the barley or the wheat. Um, and so we don't know if Boaz um, was good looking or how old he was, but we know he had very um, built shoulders and lats from this process. So just a little mental image as we continue. And so Naomi says, hey, go down to this floor and you are basically going to make yourself presentable as someone who he would want to redeem um, so that he could redeem our family. And so she says, um, put your hair up, put on some perfume, put on some of your best clothes. Um, and some, some scholars soften that and just say uh, she's now dressing like no longer like someone who would glean, but someone who is married to a landowner. It's kind of an identity change for her, as well as an impetus for Boaz um, to... Um, marry her. And so she says, go, wait till he's sleeping, scope it out, lie down by his feet, uncover his feet, and just wait. And whatever he does tell you to do, just do it. You know, so parents, just take note, this is great advice for the first date. Um, sneak, up, sneak into his bed, uncover his feet, and lay there. And whatever he says, you just do it. All right? Um, so a little interesting like, what's going on here? Is this cultural? Um, is this not? And so let's pick up the story. Um, in chapter 7, we hear not just Naomi's plan, but what actually happens. Chapter, uh, verse 7, when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, very good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Um, Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Like, sticking to the plan, Ruth. You got this. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Oh, man, that's the worst. He says, who are you? I am your servant, Ruth, she says. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Um, and so there's really two purposes that Ruth um, is hoping to accomplish uh, through this obscure and strange perhaps edgy act. The uh, purpose number one is the safe purpose, uh, to inspire Boaz to accept this opportunity um, to redeem his family. She's presenting herself not as someone gleaning, but as someone that he could marry. Um, and then it's, it's, it seems, we'll find out later that Boaz already had been thinking in this way. And so I think in the mind of Boaz, he's, 
he's standing at the gap between, it's one thing to be generous to someone by providing them food or protection or care or guidance. Um, just kind of the standard baseline generous moral obligation he would have just as a follower of God in this community, of the gleaning process. It's a whole other thing um, to marry that person. And it's a new level of humanizing Ruth. Um, she would then become an equal with him. And it would cost him um, quite a bit. He needs to make up his mind. Do I want to marry this person? Do I want to share resources with uh, her family? Is this a commitment I want to make to fully humanize and equal myself to Ruth, a foreign Moabitess, so that God's blessing might spread um, to this community? And what's interesting is I think Ruth knows this in chapter 3, 9. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me. Um, this is the same phrase uh, that Linda talked on last week about taking refuge in the wings of God. And so she's basically saying, don't just like keep me warm tonight in this awkward threshing floor situation, but may you provide for me. Like may me and my family, may I and my family be able to enter under your wing and under your providence um, and under your care. Uh, the second purpose is the edgy purpose, and it's to really inspire Boaz to accept this opportunity um, to redeem his family. In other words, like in case you can't picture Boaz, what it might be like to be married to me, here you go. Like I smell good. I got my eyeliner on. My hair's down. Um, uh, I've, I like to translate some of these Hebrew words as like spooning, you know, like very romantic um, encounter on the threshing floor. And it's really the, it's the sketchy element in, in the room. Like we want to know like how far did they go? You know, <laughs> how far is too far, Boaz? Um, where's your boundaries? And I, I think, yeah, we, I've read a bunch of commentaries on this and the conservative ones are finding every way to take the Hebrew and make it sound like they just had like a nice little tea party. Um, the more, the more um, edgy ones are taking these words um, and interpreting them in ways that, that seemed like, yeah, may, maybe there was some um, encountering happening um, and some things that maybe wouldn't be in our G-rated version of the Bible. But as we know, like the Bible hasn't ever shied away from allowing God to work through and redeem kind of the messy and broken parts of our lives that somehow um, our lack of perfection would, would hinder God from working through, it, through us. We look at David and Bathsheba as kind of like the token story of like God takes uh, our messy human existence and works through it. And so the author, the narrator doesn't tell us what happens. And so I think our Western minds don't have answers to the questions that we're asking, and that's, that's totally fine by me. Um, I'll leave it up to your interpretation. So basically, if you think it's conservative, sit over here. Not, no, I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that. Um, we don't need to distill the humanity from the story of God. God has always worked through sketchy resumes to build his kingdom um, and sustain his redemption. And so to boil it down, Ruth is saying, will you marry me? Will you become our family redeemer? Um, and let's find out what Boaz does. In verse 10, he says this, the Lord bless you, my daughter. Not something you maybe want to say, like my daughter, but that's what he says. He replied, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. So let's stop. Uh, there are three things um, that Boaz does to show us his integrity. 
Um, the first is that he recognizes the character of Ruth. Boaz has been um, upheld as a man of blameless character, someone who is embodying um, the, the shalom law of God uh, to bless his community and those around him. And so I, I really do think a man of character sees a woman of character, and there is um, something, some form of connection and recognition there. And what's interesting to note is that Boaz has been observing this. The whole town has been observing this. I think there's something, uh, the first step um, towards working for the flourishing of the marginalized is to see them, is to recognize what's going on, to step back, slow down, and recognize, man, Ruth is working day in and day out to care for her mother-in-law, Naomi, um, she's working hard. She's working with integrity. Um, and Boaz sees that and recognizes Ruth as a woman of noble character, which sounds strangely similar uh, to Proverbs 31. Is anyone familiar with kind of the classic Proverbs 31, wife of noble character thing? And what's interesting is what we want to do is we want to say like, hey, Ruth is like um, this proverb. But what's really interesting is that Ruth is the great, great grandma of Solomon who is attributed to writing the Proverbs. Um, and the interesting line is that her fame is known at the city gates, um, where Boaz says, everyone in the city knows about you. And later on, the whole kinsman redeemer process happens at the city gates, which is really interesting that a lot of people suggest that Solomon is actually writing about her, his legendary great-great-grandmother, Ruth, um, as this woman of noble character, with hard work, with creativity, engaging in the culture of the world and providing for her family, which sounds exactly like Ruth. So Boaz sees the character of Ruth. Um, secondly, he commits to redeeming the family. So here in verse 12, he says, Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of your family, there is another who is more closely related than I am. Stay here for the night and in the morning if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. And so it's, what's really funny is Boaz already knows there's someone else in line, which means he's already been thinking about it, which means over the last few weeks, maybe years, he's been, man, should I redeem Ruth's family? And it's been something that's been on his mind and in his heart. And the funny thing is, is I think Naomi's plan actually works. It kind of pushes him over the edge to take the final initiative and in saying, Ruth, I actually will marry you. Um, I actually will redeem your family. But another interesting point is that he doesn't cut any corners here. He doesn't just try to cheat the system. Now that he kind of has his own desires stirred, um, he is actually, he still sticks to the letter of the law and follows the protocol um, of their culture, which I think is another testament to his character. It's not just he's following the laws um, when it's difficult, but he's still following, he's following the laws when he still wants to do something um, else. Um, last is he preserves the reputation of Ruth. Um, whether or not he knows what to do with this whole situation that apparently worked, um, now he has a woman on his threshing floor in the night, and it would just look really sketchy, you know, if, if the walk of shame happened, and culturally, like, what's up with Ruth and Boaz? And so he sees this, he knows how this could be interpreted um, in the community, and so he says, hey, wait here, not in the middle of the night, but right at dusk before it gets too light, and I want you to leave um, at this point. And not only does he preserve the reputation of Ruth, he, he still provides for the family. So marrying Ruth isn't just about providing for Ruth. It's about providing for Naomi. And so in traditional Boaz form, before she leaves, he says, here, take some more food um, for the week. So 
in that weird moment, Boaz is still caring about Ruth and still caring about Naomi, which is exactly the type of person that should be the kinsman redeemer and exactly the type of person that Israel needs, I think we need, um, to create shalom and blessing um, within our community. Boaz isn't just an awesome dude. He is someone who lives according to the law of God, and that isn't um, entirely binding for him. It's freeing for him to love the community um, and bless those around him. And so we get to uh, the debrief. You know, you got to go back to your girlfriends, talk about how it went down. Um, that was also kind of a joke. So uh, in verse 16, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And like, that's the type of guy you want for your daughter-in-law in a strange way. Um, then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. What's interesting is that when Naomi says, um, how did it go, my daughter? Another way to translate that is, who are you, my daughter? Who are you? In one sense, she means, are you a gleaner still? Or are you engaged? Like, who are you now? Who is your identity? Did he say yes? Did he say no? How awkward was it? How did it go? Did our plan work? Um, but I think the deeper meaning is really um, a reflection for Naomi on the blessing that Ruth is for her. And so she says, who are you in the sense that how could you, Ruth, a young Moabite widow, offer such sweet providence for my bitter soul? Naomi is backtracking and reflecting on how God just dropped Naomi into her life and has put Naomi on her shoulders and has carried her um, into a place of blessing and gone with her wherever she is, whether that's depression um, or hope. And so I wonder again, when life is bitter, how can we find blessing in the community of God and wait for him to do something beyond our control? What's interesting is that um, if we backtrack and look at the entire story, we see Naomi over here kind of caught up uh, in her bitterness and in her depression and in her kind of just spiritual lostness. And we see Ruth say, I am going to covenant with you. Wherever you go, I will go. And she takes Naomi and she puts her on her back and she feels that weight and she enters into her bitterness and she carries her step by step in the direction of her flourishing. And that includes um, probably a lot of uh, nights of pastoral expression and hard daily work to provide food. And Ruth gets to this point where her strength is starting to waver and it's unsustainable to, to work this hard just to survive in this community. And, and then you have Boaz here saying, man, Ruth, wherever you go, I will go. And he steps into the position of Ruth and equalizes her uh, with him and takes the weight of Naomi and the weight of Ruth and straps it on his back and takes daily steps forward towards the flourishing um, of the community and of God. 
And friends, I think this is exactly what Jesus does for us when he says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the invitation of our Jesus, that we would challenge the faithfulness of God and present ourselves as vulnerable to the community so that Jesus, through his body and his temple and his church and the Christian community can say, wherever you go, I will go. I will meet you in the darkest moments. I will meet you in your accusations and your bitterness and I will take that yoke and I will carry it. And we will take steps daily forward towards the prosperity of you and towards the prosperity of the community. And so friends, that is the Jesus that we have today. And I'm not sure how you feel, but I would imagine that there are many uh, Naomi's and Ruth's in this room. You might be in a state of spiritual depression. You might be, your faith might be on the rocks and you're doubting it. You might be exhausted because you volunteer in like 13 ministries here and you have 18 kids and you work 60 hour weeks and you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. And so I invite you to not withhold those emotions and, and stay there, but to voice them strongly and sharply to God and then, and then create um, a, pl- a, a platform for your community to love you through that vulnerability. And so I think we actually do the opposite. Like what if Naomi didn't lament well and didn't share that with Ruth? How would Ruth have known to help? And what if Ruth wasn't um, a public in the way she needed help and they took initiative to initiate the Kinsman Redeemer process? And what if Boaz didn't see that? This could be an entirely different story. Um, And so are you Naomi today? Do you need our Jesus to meet you in that brokenness? Do you need to voice your sharp concerns to him? And then do you need to find vulnerability and prosperity in the Christian community? I know it can be difficult um, to share some of our deepest pains. Um, There's a sense of shame or just a lack of energy or a distrust. I don't think that the person that I give that personal information with will handle it well. Um, And there might be people that won't. But I really, really encourage you, Antioch, like for real, like what if we were a community that lamented well and allowed the community around us to put us on, the, on our backs um, and carry us step by step toward the flourishing of our God? What if the pathway to your flourishing includes a deeper level of honesty with God and vulnerability with your trusted community? Friends, as we come to the table today and receive communion as a community, I, I really encourage you to not uh, receive this alone, to find someone next to you, take some moments, pray some prayers, give some honest thoughts to God, and we say here that the table is open for sinners. The table is open for people who are willing to humble themselves, recognize that they need God um, and they need a Savior. Um, And we have promises that this is a tangible, recognized means of Jesus' grace to your soul. You might not feel anything crazy, but we are trusting that Jesus is meeting you in your deepest spiritual need, deepest emotional need, deepest practical need, and to wait for him to act. Um, We don't need to try to move God's kingdom along for him. Um, He can withstand the flaming arrows of your lament um, as long as you can send him his way.
Sound good? Let's pray. Father, I am incredibly grateful for the Antioch community, the way that in so many ways I see us living this. And as we um, do our best to engage in our own personal brokenness and work together towards the flourishing um, of this church um, and this city, would you give us courage, give us audacity to challenge you to do what only you can do, um, to step into our lives in the midst of the tears and um, our resistance to letting go of our white knuckles, would you bring this community together as an authentic expression of uh, your future kingdom on earth? Would you meet us um, in the sacraments today, in the prayers, in the songs? We love you in Christ's name. Amen.